talking about the words of the famous theologian and pa pastor A.W. Tozer. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I repeat, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Today, I want you to take a moment and think what come, what thought comes to your mind when you think about God. And I'm not talking about your deep knowledge of the Trinity. I'm not talking about a creed that often they teach us. I'm not talking about the big inside or even the lessons that you learned about him when you were in Sunday school. I'm talking about the simple knowledge that you may have in your heart about him. Who is God? Whatever the answer is in your heart, that is the most important thing about you. By God's grace, and after some time of studying his word, some experience in the gospel, in, in, in the path of Christ, and after actually many, many failures in my own spiritual life and in my life, and after being able to go to the seminary, in, in his grace, I have come to summarize my knowledge, my understanding of Christ in what could be very, very few words. First of all, God is holy. He's transcendent. He's pure. He's not like us. But second, another thing that I have learned and I could define God by is that God must be very, 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 very powerful. But also, God must be very, 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 very merciful. These two characteristics about God, his power and his mercy, allow me to trust in a God that is both very, very powerful to take care of me, to provide for me, but also very merciful to care for me, to understand me. And just think for a minute about God's power, just the universe. There are hundreds of billions of galaxies. There are, uh, this week I found out something really fascinating and I didn't know this, that there are more stars and planets than grains of sand in the earth. Can you imagine that? The scientists have understood that there are more stars and planets than grains of sand in the earth. Is it not incredible? Is it not astonishing? I even had to double check. I heard that last week from one of our professors in the master's seminar. I was, wow, I don't believe that. Let me double check. But to think, and it was a professor from the master seminary, they teach us to double check. <laughs> and also, it's incredible that the human cell, you know, the human cell, the cell that you came to, you know, that has made you, you know, your origin, the first cell, has more information than one of the most complex galaxies in the world. Is it not incredible, God? Is it not powerful? And I could go on and on and on talking about the power of God is an infinite, eternal, vast power. 
the depth, the beauty, the vastness of the universe is incredible. But you know what? Equally great is his mercy because it's an attribute of God. God is eternally, infinitely holy. He's also eternally, infinitely omniscient. There is no limit to any of his attributes. So his mercy does not have limit. It's eternal. It's infinite. Doesn't have a barrier. Doesn't have a limit. And today's history, as we, we go through it, is a love history that shows his power and his mercy. Two attributes, two, two qualities that are incompatible to humankind. There have been many, many powerful men, but because of pride and arrogance, they have become what? Tyrant, mean, bad, selfish. But this history that we will be learning today and this narrative take us to the very, very heart of Christ. Only God, only Christ could be meek and majestic at the same time. Only he could have the humility he showed and the glory that he possessed. Only he could have that mercy and that power as a set of attributes that were not contradictory in his own nature. They were totally consistent in Christ. This narrative, this study we are going to go through this morning, this preaching, this message, is a very, very special message to me because I didn't identify with the, one of the main characters in this history. I identify with this man because that, in many ways, I have been my life. And I hope and I pray that you may identify too with the character of this man, of this man that we will be going through. But before we continue with the text and before I introduce the message, I want to make three important observations so we get out of a couple of things that are important to the text. The first one, I'm using the ESV, the English Standard Version, and some uh, versions, like the King James Version, has verse number four. My Bible doesn't have uh, verse four. Does, does your Bible have a uh, verse four or not? It has a verse 4. Okay. Some versions like mine doesn't, doesn't have verse 4. And um, verse 4 in, in, the, in the versions that has this verse reads something like the angel of the, of the, of the angel went down at a certain season, uh, moved, steer the water of the pool, and then it goes on. My Bible doesn't have it. And the reason is that there is about 5,800 manuscripts that they have found from scriptures. And now, due to this archaeological research, they have found that most, most of the manuscripts that they have found don't have this verse, verse 4. So the scholars, those who have studied God's word and have translated the Bible, have decided, since there is more evidence that that verse was not in the originals, to omit it. So mine doesn't have it. Uh, so that is, again, as a result of archaeological evidence. So uh, if you have more questions about that, we can talk later on. But I just want to make sure that you know the reason why that verse is not, for example, in the ESV, in the NIV, and many other versions. But this archaeological evidence has also allowed us to find something out. And is 
that we are not talking about that allegory. We are not talking about an invention. We are not taking, talking to the out a made-up story by John. We are talking about something very, very true. Opponents uh, of Scripture have said that this is a tale, that this is not true. However, in the year 1862, the uh, engineer and uh, archaeologist Simons from France, a, a, a Frenchman, began what was called the Bethesda Project. And in that project, they began doing some archaeological research. And guess what? They found the Bethesda pool. Exactly where it was located at. You can Google it and you can find it. And you can see. They found it. You can see the, col the columns. They are still there. The pools, actually, they were two pools. So that gives us total security and confidence of the veracity of this site. It gives us the background. There were two pools, and even engineers now have explained why the water could move, because there are two pools, and somehow they would drain water from one pool to the other one. So they have found the reason why maybe there was some movement of waters, and they even found a painting with an angel. So that's why maybe they included verse 4 to explain the movement of the waters. So you can Google it again, and that's just incredible how um, we can be certain that uh, this is a true story. And also, the third observation I want to make is that this is the third sign of or miracle of Jesus Christ. The first miracle of sign took place in chapter 2 when God, Jesus, converted the, wine into, uh, the water into wine. In chapter 4, the, the healing of the son of the royal officer in Capernaum. So, and now we are in the third sign, so it's very, very important to study this text this morning, because John, John 20, 30, says that, may, that Jesus did many, many signs, but he only chose seven. And this is one of them. So it's very important. Because these signs that he has written, John says in John 20, 31, that have been written so that you may believe. In what? That Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Savior of the world. That you may believe that he is the Son of God. That is someone who receives, who deserves all our glory, all our worship, all our acknowledgement. And that believing, and that believing, by believing, you may have life in his name. So we are talking about what? Life. This history is not just to help us believe in miracles. It's not just to help us believe in the historical Jesus. This, is not, this history is just not, not just to give us more knowledge about Christ. This history is to think about our eternal life. To make sure that we truly, truly believe and understand in a Christ that has manifested himself to this earth and that has come with a purpose that we might have eternal life. And the contrary of life is what? Death. So we are today considering something very, very important. The title of this message, as it's in your bulletin, is What Should Be Your Response to the Mercy 
and power of Christ. The outline of the message is very simple. The mercy of Christ, verse 6. The power of Christ, verse 8. And your response to the mercy of Christ in verses 14. So let's pray and let's commit this time into the Lord. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. Your word is the expression of your mercy and your love for a humanity, humanity that has not acknowledged you. Lord, so today we are very privileged here today for uh, being able to study your word, to know you, to learn from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit may give us the soft, uh, a soft heart, Lord, to, um, to understand that, Lord. Father, these words cannot be understood by, by a human mind, only by the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you may help us. Help me to communicate this message and help all of us to apply it in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So we are in uh, John 5, verses 1 to 14. And uh, let's start with verse 1, and I will be walking uh, us through, through this portion. So verse 1 says, uh, After this, there was, a feast, uh, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So what is after this? After this is the healing of the, of the son of the royal officer that just took place in chapter 4. Jesus when he healed this, um, the son of this royal officer, he was in Canana, Cana, of, Cana of Galilee. By chapter 4, Jesus also was in Samaria, you know, with the um, Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman. In chapter 3, Jesus was in Jerusalem. In chapter 2, Jesus was in Galilee. In chapter 1, in chapter one he was in Bethany across the Jordan. We see Christ personifying what? That humility. Can you imagine? Jesus going from village to village. Jesus a missionary, keeping eternal promises. I'm tired of flying. I had to sleep nine hours yesterday. <laughs> Jesus Christ was walking and walking and walking. The Son of God. Isn't that an incredible example? Maybe sleeping somewhere on the floor, carrying his bed from place to place. The son of God who had all the glory, angels worshiping him. And he comes to earth to show us humility, meanness, and the power of God that was able to change lives even up to today. So Christ is consistent. That's why this word is so powerful. Because God sent his only son to become flesh and to give us and to show us his love. So this example, we should remember ourselves. Philippians 4, 3 to 8, you don't have to go there. But it says, do nothing out of, from selfish ambition. In humility, consider others more important. Have the mind, the attitude of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. What an incredible exhortation. Jesus Christ gave us example to live a life that was to serve 
others. So these words are very, very important because this is the model of Christ. Now he says, the verse 1, that he was in a, in, the, in a feast of the Jews. And for John, that is not important to mention what kind of uh, feast it was. But verse 3 tells us, uh, that uh, verse 2 says that uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem there was, uh, let's read chapter verse 2. It says, now there, I, there is in Jerusalem by the ship gate a pool in Aramic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. I already talked a little about that, so it's a real place. And verse 3 says that in this lay multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And in those days, there was not health care, no hospitals, no medicine, no doctors. It's a very difficult concept for us to, to, to understand now because we don't see places like that. We are so far away from that reality. But for me in Colombia, I have seen a lot, a lot of poor people. People without arms, without legs, begging for money. Those who have been in India or have seen something out in India. And so many countries where there are a lot of people. But we are so blessed to be in a country where we don't see those needs. There is social security. There are so many things. But that reality that we are living here shouldn't be an element to keep us away from the reality of the world and of all so many people. But that was how those days were. People without any health, without any basic provision for their lives. But what did the Son of God did? The Son of God left his glory, came down from heaven and became a man to keep a divine appointment. To come, as verse, man, verse 5 says, he says of a one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He comes all the way from heaven to meet, to keep an appointment. Eternally established by God, by the Father in his love and his mercy. At that time, because there was a feast of the Jews, there must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem. In the Bethesda pool, there were also hundreds because there were Multitude, that is what implies hundreds, many. But verse 5 says one man was there. In the Greek, there is an adverb that is now. Now there was a man. Why? Because John is drawing his attention from the multitudes to a single man. Christ is a God who is Personal, personal. In the midst of all the thousands, millions of people, he has the knowledge and the love to reach out to every single person of the world. And he said there was a man there who had been paralyzed for how many years? 38. That's a lot, a lot of time. And, and verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him laying there anew, that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? We see that Jesus saw him and knew. When he says that Jesus saw him, is to say that Jesus had the what? 
the initiative. He had the initiative. He looked for him. He distinguished him among the multitude. And what does he say? That he knew. The word knew in the Greek has the connotation of arriving at the knowledge on his own. He perceived, perceived just like with the Samaritan woman, that he, no one had to tell him what, this one, what was the life of this woman. Jesus knew his suffering. Jesus knew his difficulties in life. And here we see when he say, then Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And that's my first point of my online, the mercy of Christ. He chooses, he chooses a person among the whole multitude. He didn't go to the palace of a king. He didn't go to the most refined places. He came to a place that maybe none of us would dare to go. He showed his mercy to this man. And having that knowledge, Christ sees him and takes the initiative to do what? To extend mercy to this invalid man. Do you want to be healed? Why do you think this man was there? Why do you think there are homeless in the streets? Why do you think there are drug users out there? Why do you think there are people in jail? We don't know why. But Jesus doesn't judge them. He doesn't ask him questions. The, the God, Jesus didn't judge this man and didn't say, hey, why are you here? Wow, you must be a very, very bad person. Why did you? Wow. Sometimes we tend to judge people and say, oh, I'm talking about myself. I have, I have done it many times. He deserves to be there. Wow, that person with that lifestyle, huh, no wonder. But what did Jesus do? Jesus extended mercy to this man, and he's gracious. What is mercy? We don't hear that word very often, is that right? We hear a lot about love. We hear a lot about kindness, gentleness, awesomeness, cool. <laughs> he's cool, huh? But we don't hear about he's merciful. We forgot that because we are so used not to deserve mercy. Oh, I don't need mercy from anybody. Is that right? It reminds me of, of a, um, a friend of mine that was in a Starbucks in Santa Barbara, California, a very nice place, and he saw a homeless. Hmm? And, he, and the homeless asked, he, asked, asked this friend of mine for money. He said, no. He said, can you give me a dollar or two? So he said, come here. So he took him to Starbucks, bought like a $15, $20 breakfast for him, and you know what this homeless did? Threw it to the floor and said, I don't need your mercy. I just ask you for a dollar. And sometimes we say, I don't need mercy from anybody. I just need to prove myself. And that's not how it works sometimes with God. And I would say, correct myself, that's not how it is with God at all. We all deserve that mercy. We all deserve that compassion. What is mercy? Mercy one is one of the most essential qualities of God. In Exodus 34, 6, it reads like this. You don't have to go there. It says, the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's who he is. That's how he identifies himself. A merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In the Deuteronomy 431, says like this. Moses is speaking. He says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. That is who he is. He's a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers. Is it not beautiful? Is it not incredible? Now I can say, is it not awesome to have a God who is merciful? Mercy, mercy is, is um, specifically designates that quality in God by which he faithfully keeps his promises despite our unworthiness and unfaithfulness. That's very important about mercy. Mercy is that attribute, that quality of God by which he's faithful and keeps his promises despite what? Our unworthiness and our unfaithfulness. This man, he wasn't worthy to receive the healing in the pool of Bethesda. He wasn't a rich man. He didn't, maybe he had a lot of sin. Just think. Let's be honest. Why do you think he was there? Maybe he had sin. Maybe he didn't live worshiping his life. He, maybe he was far away from God. Angry at him. But who is God? God is a God of mercy and compassion who comes and shows him love. So, this, this term of mercy is a very, very rich term in Hebrew and Greek. And it has the connotation and other words that have tried to explain the concept of mercy as kindness, loving kindness, goodness, grace, favor, pity, compassion, steadfast love. All those words are trying to explain mercy. But the umbrella, the main term is mercy. And as a way of application, let's start thinking. When you think about God, does his mercy towards you come to your mind? Do you think of, of, of God as a merciful God in your life? Do you see your mercy? Have you experienced his mercy? Are you grateful for his mercy? Do you rejoice in his mercy? Without mercy, without his mercy, no one, no one, no one of us could be here today. The first one that would be out would be me. <laughs> you wouldn't have a preacher today. <laughs> you would have to call Pastor Bobby. Pastor Bobby, he didn't come. <laughs> Why? Because I don't think God was merciful with the, with the preacher. <laughs> but he has been merciful. And he has allowed me to stay here, to be here today. And it's only because of his mercy. We all are here because he has been merciful through his general revelation. He has given us the sun, which, is upon, which falls, the, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. 
the good and the bad. God is a God very, very merciful God. He also has given us a special revelation through scriptures and through Christ, which, has, which have allowed us to have a knowledge of Christ and even to be here. The only reason why you are here is because God's grace, God's mercy has been upon you and has allowed you to be here and hear these words, which not because come from me, but because come from God's word are powerful. It's the word of God that is speaking to us today and allowing us to understand that there is a very, very merciful God. And, and just think a little bit about Psalm 139. I love this psalm, and we all know it. Psalm 139, you don't have to go there. But it says that God knows and sees you, that he knows your path, that he's acquainted with all your ways, that you cannot flee from his presence, that his spirit is everywhere. And it goes on, the, on and on, the whole chapter, talking about just that knowledge of God. And in verse 14, in verse 14 David says, I praise you. And in verse 17, he says, How precious to me are your thoughts. Oh God, how vast is the sum of, El, of, all, of them all. He is a very, very merciful God. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. Without Christ, we were blind. Did you know that? Did you know that you, without Christ, you were blind. Luke 4, 18 tells us that he came to open the eyes of the blind. And he has opened our eyes to see him, to see the gospel, the glory of God. Did you know that without Christ, we were lame? We were lame. You and me were lame. Leviticus 21.18 says that no lame, no blind person could enter into the sanctuary. And without Christ, we couldn't enter into the sanctuary, into the presence of God. But, but by him coming and dying on the cross, the curtain of the temple torn in two. So we have what? Access to the very princes of the Lord. Aren't we privileged? That he has bestowed mercy upon us. We were utterly sick. Without Christ. But Isaiah 53 5 says. That in his wounds. Through his wounds. By his wounds. He healed us. Without Christ. Just like the paralyzed man. Of the pool of Bethesda. We could have not be saved. Let's go to, to verse 7. It says. That, that the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me to the pool when the water is still up and while I am going another step down, down before me. And that just affirms one saying that without him, we could have never, never been saved. Just imagine how sad the life of that, this man could have been. It says that he had been, he had been paralyzed and sick for 30 year, 38 years. And maybe for many, it doesn't say how many, he had been in this place every single day in the prison of his illness, in the prison of his infirmity, 
in the prison of his condition. And many people, maybe with tie, maybe with a $1,000 watch, maybe with a Mercedes-Benz, maybe living in a mansion, they have also been in the prison of what? Their sin. They are part of the multitude. They are part of the many who are out there. But they are living one day at a time. Just like this man. Getting up every single day and hoping that that day the angel would move the waters and he would jump and be healed. And many people are today thinking that one day they will find a relationship. They will find a job. They will find even the ministry or anything that will satisfy their lives. But it's only the mercy of God that can truly open our eyes and help us understand that mercy is more than achieving the things of this world or just having a hope based on somebody helping us. And that was the experience of, for example, Paul. In First Timothy 1.13, you don't need to go there. He says that though Paul had, though Paul had been a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, what happened to him? He doesn't say that he became a nice person or he worked hard. He received what? Mercy. Paul, a man who knew so much about God, has so much knowledge about the scriptures, the Old Testament, was such a high figure in the Jewish and even the Roman community. He received mercy. Titus 3.5, speaking to all of us, says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? To his own mercy. Paul received mercy. That is, God had the initiative to give it. He didn't gain. And I gain and I earn and I acquire this mercy. No, he received it as a gift. And we can only be saved by what? His own mercy. First Peter 1.3, he says that according to his what? Great mercy. So mercy must be, as I said, an eternal, infinite, unmeasurable attribute of God. Yet, Peter says his great mercy. It's like when you go to the ocean and you see the vastness of the ocean. And you say, wow, this great ocean. Thanks for telling me it's great. Of course it's great. But you are making a point. And Paul and Peter is making a point here. He what? Called us to be born again. So mercy of God is not passive. It is active. His mercy becomes power. His mercy becomes power. Because, and that leads me to, to, my, to my second point of the outline. Is verse 8. We can read um, that verse, please. And maybe you can, let's read verse 8. It says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. That mercy, that compassion of Christ is not, is not passive. It becomes what? 
power in the life of this man. Verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Isn't it incredible, the power of God? We don't see that today. We don't know the extent of how paralyzed this man was. But he must, he must have been really paralyzed. Just think, no one. He had to be carried by someone. And yet, Christ, just like this, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And today, I hope that you are beginning to identify yourself with the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus, as this man experienced the mercy and power of God, you have, you have also experienced his mercy. Christ has offered you salvation. But I hope also that you have experienced his power by giving, what, giving you what? Eternal life. That is the power of God. Because what kind of power am I talking about? I remember here, especially by elections time, you know, the power couple. You know, wow, that's a powerful car. A car. Huh? I got power. Is there no such thing that says, says like that? I got the power, something like that. No. Today, we think of people as powerful. Wow, that engine is really powerful. I'm not talking about that type of power. I'm talking about the power of God. In Ephesians 2, 4, 6, 2, 4, 6 says that though we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. In Colossians 1, 13, it says that he has, he has delivered us from the dominion of, of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of whom? His beloved son. Is it not incredible power? Romans 1, I think it's verse 4, 6, says that God resurrected Christ. The power of God resurrected Christ. The power of God creates. The power of Christ brings to life. Sometimes we forget the miracle God has done in our lives. Just think. We were dead in our sins and transgressions. And what has he done? He has brought us back to life. That's an incredible miracle. Have you ever seen a dead body come back into life? If I were told you that I have, I don't know if you would believe me, but I have seen a dead body come to life. I'm talking about me. I was dead in my sins and transgressions. And what he did? He brought me back to life. Have you thought about that? How merciful God has been to you? How powerful he has been to you? Just to think that we were in the dominion of darkness. Not only blind, but in the dominion of darkness. One thing is for a person that can see being in the darkness. That's even worse, a person who is blind, if there can be that logic. Being in darkness, that is no hope, no hope. He brought us, that's an incredible, the power of God. That is why Romans 1 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because he heals, he restores, he gives life. 
That is the, the gospel. Is it not incredible? The mercy and the power of God. Giving us salvation. Offering us salvation. Access to the Father. Eyes. Allowing us. To live. That. Gospel. That power of God. Fulfills. The promises of Christ. In John 20, 31, that I read at the beginning of this message. To give life to those who believe in him. Isn't it not incredible, the power of God, the mercy? Now that I have established how the mercy and power of Christ was manifested in the life of this man at the Bethesda pool, let's look at the third and final point of my outline. And, and, and that is in verse 14. And between, I'm going to read a real quick verses 9 to 14. It says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn, and as there was a crowd in the place. Now, verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, verses 10 to 13, there is a discussion um, that you guys get the point. You know, the, the, the Jews ask him, oh, he, Who healed you? So he points out to Jesus, or he says, Well, this man, I don't know. I won't spend too much time into that, only that just read it and, and just understand that there was going something, there was some uh, going on something on there. But I want to bring you um, to this point, to my third point, verse 14. He says, sin no more. Jesus and all of us know that he would sin again because he was a human, human being. But what Jesus was telling him is to depend, to trust, to have a relationship with Christ, with himself, with him, with God. Because notice that now, where is he? In the temple. He was with the Jews, with the enemies of Christ. He was fulfilling all these rituals. Because it was a Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. So whatever he did, you know, this paralyzed man, to take his bed and walk, that was unlawful. That was against the law. And to do things against the law, it would have meant for him to be taken outside the religious system. So most scholars agree that this man went to the temple to say, okay, I don't know. He healed me. I don't know who he is. I have no connection with that man. But here I am. What do we have to do? He was going into religion. And sometimes that's how we become. We become very, exper exper very experts in religion. We read the Bible. We go to church. You know, and we get a big one. <laughs> big Bible. You know, ah, yeah, I go there. I do that. I do that. Just like this man. Right there in the temple. You know, 
But it's not about going to church. It's not about reading many Christian books. It's not about even memorizing scriptures. Yes, those things are good. But it's about a relationship with the Lord. At least that's what John 15 says. And I want to read it to you guys, but you don't have to go there. Just, he says, and Jesus is speaking. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? And what is nothing? Nothing is nothing. You cannot please God. You cannot obey his commandments. You cannot change your life on your own. It's only by that relationship, with that closeness, that intimacy with Christ, which will allow you to live a victorious life in Christ. And then Jesus says, says, do not sin anymore, that nothing worse may happen to you. Is it not kind of, kind of ironic statement from Christ? That nothing worse may happen to you. What worse could happen to him? The guy doesn't seem to have a wife. <laughs> Maybe doesn't have children because no one helps him. The guy doesn't own a house, doesn't own a car. Maybe he doesn't have to pay money to pay rent. Doesn't have an insurance. Doesn't have anything. And yet, Christ tells you, hey, sin no more. Meaning, hey, you better have a relationship with me. You better follow me. You better be close to me. Unless, unless, something worse happens to you. What worse could happen to him? What worse could happen to him? In John 15, 6, says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. In the context of John 5, the text we are reading, verse 25 says, in John 5, Truly, truly, I say, an hour is coming and is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Christ is big in the in the in the story we read about the Bethesda pool and this hill, he, and he healed this man. He's beginning to build his case against the Jewish and against the world. He, as the son of God, he was going to judge, and he's going to judge those who have not experienced, receive his mercy and the power of his salvation. And what is worse than being in the situation of that man, what was to spend eternal life in hell? But Jesus Christ, through this sign, today he's speaking to us and allowing us to understand that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, can have the opportunity to have eternal what? Life with him for eternity.
But those who don't understand, who don't understand his mercy and haven't experienced his power to bring you back to life, as hard as it is to say it, they will experience judgment. And that is the worst thing that could happen to this man. Sometimes we complain and we say, oh my gosh, I have it so tough. Oh, poor me, poor me, poor me. Is that right? Poor me. Oh, you know, we talk here in the States of um, Lucifer. That's, oh man, that guy's a loser. That guy's a loser. <laughs> you know? And this guy, maybe we would call him a loser. But you know what? He who has Christ is not a loser because he has a hope that is eternal. doesn't matter the circumstances in this life. So in closing, I want to, to, to conclude this message. You know, just the conclusion. We are, oh, no, in, in California it's 9.30. I still have two more hours. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, I so I just want to conclude this message with, with a couple of reflections for, for all of you. Here in this room, there are only three kinds of people. There is no more. By human means and by human standards, we can have many, many classifications here. Whatever those classifications we can create. But before God, there is only three kinds of people today. There are those who have believed in Christ, the Son of God. Those who belong to him. Those who have experienced his mercy and power. For you, I want to encourage you to keep pressing on. To remember every single day, even in the most basic way, just his mercy and his power. And just be grateful to the Lord. Keep on growing. Keep on loving him. Don't just be like this lame man who went to the temple. Just got busy, busy, busy in the things, even of ministry, even of the, the, the liturgics of the church. And forget that it's about the relationship with Christ. Just make sure. In the most basic way, you can do it. Maybe the most basic way is on your knees. Just being grateful for everything the Lord has given you. Share this message with others. Sometimes we forget the joy of salvation, how privileged we are. Yes, that the, the, the way of salvation is narrow. Yes, it is narrow. Yes, that we struggle with sin. Yes, we do. And it's tough and it's hard. That people sometimes, even here in our church, criticize us. Yes, it's not easy. Sometimes the easiest way is, just, you know what, I'm going to leave the church. You know what, I don't like that. You know, I don't like how they say I don't know how they speak. I don't like how they preach. And we just leave. No. Be grateful to the Lord that you have the fortune, the privilege of having a pastor and a staff that cares about God's word and preaches God's word. You guys are privileged. So continue pressing on. Continue sharing that message to others. The second group that there is here today is believers who may have lost your joy and intimacy with Christ. Maybe those who have lost your first love. And to you, I also want to encourage you. Mercy flows out of a, of a heart that has love. And I'm not here 
exhorting anybody. You know, I'm not here. No. I am here sharing that mercy and love which I have received. So if you have lost that first love, my encouragement is as, as, as Jesus actually, Christ himself, God, talked to the people in to the church of Ephesus. He says, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lamp from its place unless you repent. This church that Paul was talking in Ephesus 2 that has come from death to life, now they were struggling. They had lost their first love. So it's normal. But God's love, mercy, and power are there for you. And third, the, the, the last group we, have, we may have here, and I hope not, but maybe, is unbelievers. People who have heard the gospel for so many years. Or maybe you are here for the first time and you just haven't experienced that change of your life, that joy, that mercy, that awesomeness that say, wow, I was paralyzed. I was lame. I was blind. Now I see. My encouragement for you is talk to one of the elders, Khalif, Greg. There are many here, Brian. And all the leadership, there are people who here. the pastor, when he comes back, just recommit your life. If there is that option for recommit, just give your word to Christ and say, you know what? I want to experience the joy. I want to go and tell others the great news that I was dead and now I'm alive. That he has given me mercy. I have received it because of his mercy. I am where I am. So um, just to sum up, Today we have learned about his mercy, his power, and the response we should have to that mercy and to that power. Because it's serious. We are talking about eternal life. This, this narrative was written, this sign took place with only one purpose that you may have eternal life. Isn't it incredible that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would leave heaven, his glory, so that today we would hear and we would learn about his mercy and power? That's incredible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word alone is powerful and effective and more powerful than any two-edged sword, Lord. Thank you for uh, just the privilege we all have to be here and to hear your word, Lord. Father, we are so blessed, as Revelation 1 says. We are so blessed to hear your word, but we are also blessed as, as we can. So give us the grace, the mercy, and the power to obey it, to love it, and to serve you. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Uh,